0: Welcome back to the Gospel of Mark. We were there in November, and then we hit Thanksgiving, and then the Christmas series, and then Ethan opened the new year, and then I gave you a vision message, and then got sick. So, if you can hearken back to November, we considered the, the first 14 verses, first 13 verses of Mark chapter 13, and you'll recall... That Jesus has entered Jerusalem and he's entered the temple, not to celebrate the temple, not to commemorate the temple, but to condemn the temple. The temple had failed to point the nations to Christ and it had become a source of ethnic pride and of personal enrichment for the religious leadership. So So Jesus, rather, goes to the temple... And he overturns the money changers' tables, and he shocks the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and the Herodians with his authority. You'll remember there's five questions there in the temple. They're trying to trip him up and get him to stumble so they can crucify him. And at every every time he gets out of the question and then astounds the Leadership with his answers and then in chapter 13 he astounds his disciples as well when he says in verse 2 not one stone of the temple that they're looking at from the Mount of Olives will be left upon another which will not be torn down. You see church the temple was going to be dethroned and Jesus the true temple was being enthroned (laughs) as the person and the place of access to God forevermore. We are the temple of God. We are the ones who've been transformed by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. The place that people come to know God is among the people of God. We've got what the world needs. The disciples want to know when all this is going to happen and the sign that all these things will be fulfilled. And we saw back in November that Jesus told his disciples to expect geopolitical conflicts and messianic pretenders and earthquakes and famines and arrests and betrayal by their own families. And opportunities to proclaim the gospel throughout the known inhabited world. And yet Jesus says these things are just birth pains. It's just just the beginnings of the advancement that will come cataclysmically in 70 AD when the temple falls. But in verse 14, Jesus transitions from the birth pains to the turbulent time of the toppling of the temple in 70 AD. And I want to ask you as we break in at verse 14... ...of chapter 13 of Mark. Would you join me in standing for the reading of God's Word? Hear now the Word of God. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold... Here's the Christ, or behold, he is there. Do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I've told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory and Then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now, learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you too, when you see these things happening, recognize it is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But, verse 32, of that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven or the Son, but the Father alone. Take heed, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, are in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert, or stay awake. Would you pray with me? Christ, when you return, may you find North Roanoke Baptist Church to be A people of one heart and one vision and one purpose, united, wide awake, living for the glory of Christ our King. We ask it in His name. Amen. You may be seated. These verses in Mark are among the most difficult portions of Scripture in the entire Bible to interpret. Hooray for me. With faithful Christians and Bible scholars often disagreeing about how to interpret Mark 13. And yet, all Orthodox Christians do agree, no matter how we understand most of Mark 13, that on that day when he returns, he's going to come personally and visibly and gloriously to judge the quick and the dead. And that what we do in this life makes all the difference in what will happen when he returns again. I want to perhaps surprise some of you this morning in giving you uh, a a view of this text that is likely at odds with the view that you have most likely heard for all your life. I'm going to teach primarily the view that has been the dominant view of Mark 13 throughout most of church history. I want to outline the major orthodox views. First, some believe that verses 14 through 31 are entirely future in their orientation. That is talking about a future temple, a future tribulation, a future coming of the Son of Man to earth from heaven and glory. Others believe the verses describe events that are entirely in the past. Because verse 30 says, this generation, meaning the people standing in front of Jesus, will not pass away until all these things take place. Now what some people do is say, well Jesus is actually talking about a future generation when he comes again. The challenge with doing that. Is most of the other places, in fact all the other places, that are not in the context of Mark 13 or Matthew 24 or Luke 21, refer to the generation that's standing in front of Jesus. And then finally, there are others who take an approach of dual fulfillment. Well, I can't figure it out, so Jesus is talking about what his disciples will experience, but also what we will experience later. And so it's past and future, it's fulfilled and unfulfilled, it's already and it's not yet. Are y'all clear as mud? Everybody here? All right. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. You don't have to agree with my view of Mark 13 to be a full-fledged member of North Roanoke Baptist Church. We've got to agree on the personal, visible, glorious return of Jesus. And how the details work out, we might disagree on. And that's okay. But regardless of how you read Mark 13, whether past, future, or blended, is however you take it, this scripture... Is clearly recorded not just for the first disciples. But for the church as well. Because it's included in the scripture. So the question we ought to ask. Under any one of these ways of seeing this text. What are some universal principles we can extrapolate from Mark 13. And under any timeline. I believe these three, three things we see in Mark 13. One. When we face tribulation because of our faith in Christ. We must rely on God and rest in the gospel. Two. Two. We must trust that Christ will not abandon his people and his promises will soon ripen. Summertime is on the way. And number three, we must not try to outsmart Jesus, but live for him. First, we must rely upon God and rest in the gospel. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus teaches his disciples that... The normal and ongoing challenges of living in a world that is hostile to him will continue. But then in verse 14, we get that crazy little word of transition. That word, but. In verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation or the abomination which causes desolation, that's when it's time to escape. That's when it's time to flee or to run to the mountains, verse 14. This little phrase, abomination that causes Desolation is taken from a cryptic reference in Daniel 9:27, 11:31 and 12:11 to a scandal that would defile the temple. Some interpreters believe that the abomination of desolation happened back in 186 BC when Antiochus IV a Syrian general went into the temple and sacrificed a pig there on an altar to Zeus. I think the problem with that view is it doesn't make much sense of the fact that Jesus is saying this is something that's going to happen, and he's saying it to his disciples 200 years after the fact. Another view is that it refers to the Roman general Titus standing in the temple before its subsequent destruction in September of 70 A.D. In other words, the temple, Jesus says, that's going to fall, the one he points to, does in fact fall in the generation of Jesus' disciples. It happens in September of 70 A.D., Not in wintertime. It happens in the fall, and it falls. And there's a a Gentile, pagan, Roman general who stands right there in the temple complex. And, And many believe, as do I, that this is the abomination of desolation, and that the readers understand this. Others believe that this abomination of desolation is referring to a future antichrist, the man of lawlessness, described in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And others believe that it's, it's perhaps a combination of those things. It's, it's a principle that, that we see reappearing over time. Given what historians have said about the horrific holocaust and carnage in Jerusalem, one that you probably don't ever read about, back in 70 AD when the Romans moved in, I believe that Jesus is speaking of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the abomination of the Roman General standing there in the temple right there for all to see. Christians, you see, used this text to be prepared to flee with nothing but the gospel in one another. If you go back and read church history, Christians were ready for what happened in the temple. Jews stayed in the city believing that Jesus was crazy and they were slaughtered and they were horrifically slaughtered, but Christians left the city in time. And while many Jews died, Christians in the generation of Jesus were saved because they obeyed this passage of Scripture. And yet the Spirit has inspired this text for the entire church in every generation. We know that because the tribulation, verse 19, that's faced by the first disciples is a pattern of the adversity that the people of God face until we see Christ. When He brings heaven to earth as He comes on clouds of glory. In verse 19, the Greek text literally reads those days will be tribulation. Church, trusting in Jesus does not mean the absence of trouble. Did you know that? Uh, Trusting in Christ. In fact, in some ways, trusting in Christ is an assurance of trouble. Because in the moment that you are adopted as a son or daughter of God, you are at odds with the world. And the world no longer makes sense to you. And you have a heart cry for a world that's beyond this world. And so if you want to no adversity, then trust Jesus. Has anybody ever shared the gospel with you that way? So often we make it sound like come to Jesus and you'll have your best life now and everything will be wonderful and perfect. And yes, it is in a sense wonderful and perfect because of the sure hope that we have that's coming in Christ. But in the here and now, it's difficult. It's trouble. And yet Jesus is enough for the trouble. Jesus says in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble. The word is tribulation. But take heart! I've overcome the world. In Acts fourteen twenty two, Paul and Barnabas were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. Notice how they strengthen and encourage the church. Notice what they say: Everything's going to be wonderful. It's going to be perfect. Is that what they said? No. This is, this is how they strengthen the church, saying, "Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God." Jesus prepares his disciples for trouble by telling them of the trouble to come and then assuring them that God would be, would be with them in the middle of the storm just as he was with his disciples on the stormy sea. The temple would be destroyed, but the true temple, the people of God, would endure and they would do so by praying to God. It would not come in winter and it didn't. It came in the fall and that he would shorten the days and he did on behalf of his church. So when calamity comes, don't rely on anything in your house or even in the familiarity of your hometown. Run with the gospel full of faith in God. And as you go, we must take heed. Do you see that in verse 23? Or watch out or be on guard. Why? So that we will not fall prey to deceptively quick fixes to tribulation. In verse 22, Jesus warns there's going to be false Christs and false prophets who show signs and wonders to lead astray, even if possible, the elect. But praise God, it is not possible for those who have fixed their hope on Christ who died on Calvary and is returning again in glory. It is not possible for us to be duped or deceived because our hope is not in miracle workers. Our hope is not in signs and wonders. Our hope is in the story of Christ crucified, resurrected, and returning, period. And until I see him return, I'm not going to be duped by somebody who can lay their hands on somebody and heal cancer. I'm not going to be duped by anybody who can levitate. I'm not going to be duped by anybody who can do any of that stuff. Until I see him pierce the eastern sky, I'm working for him. We watch out, church, not for signs and for wonders, but for our souls. Knowing that there is life and vindication that comes through and after tribulation. Verse, Excuse me, point number two We must trust that Christ will not abandon his people And that his promises will soon ripen Like the previous verses, this section is not any easier to interpret Some believe that verses 24 through 31 are all about the future Christ's future, in fact, in your Bibles, your editor probably made that decision for you Probably gave it a nice little heading Said this is about the return of Jesus In this view, excuse me, that it's about the future end of the age return to earth from heaven by Jesus. Others, however, believe that the events all the way through 31 actually occurred during the time of the disciples. In this view, the world going dark and the stars being upset, all these astrological phenomena are figurative language. Used to refer to cataclysmic changes here on earth Which is a repeated pattern in the Old Testament by the way When there's political upheaval You hear about stars falling and things going dark When Jesus was crucified what happened? The world went dark So in this view Jesus is not coming from heaven to earth But from earth to heaven He's being enthroned. He's coming in clouds to the Ancient of Days. Now you say, well, that's crazy. I've never read that this way. Daniel 7, 13, which is the verse that Mark is alluding to, says this. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. In this view, Jesus is saying, church, that when the temple falls and trouble settles down, people will see what the apostles had already seen. They will perceive... That Jesus is the King of glory. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. When the world goes dark with major political changes in Jerusalem, people will remember that the world had already gone dark at Calvary. Christ had been crucified, but the darkness could not hold him. And 50 days later, he went up into the clouds and was received at the right hand of the Father. And he said, I'm coming to you again like that, in like manner, one day. People will see... Right now, as we go in Jesus' name, that Jesus, we're not waiting for him to be king and Lord and God. He is king and Lord and God. And when we share the gospel, we're inviting them to follow our king who rules and reigns in righteousness at the right hand of the Father right now. Amen. In verse 27, Mark speaks of angels gathering the elect. You say, Well, Daniel, I, I sort of understand this other view of this text, but what about the angels? I don't remember any angels around 70 AD going out and gathering the elect, but the word angel means messenger and it can refer either to angelic beings sent from God or the people sent from God. In Mark chapter one, verse two, John the Baptist is called an angel or a messenger from God in Luke chapter nine, verse 52, Jesus sends his angels or his messengers, likely James and John into a Samaritan village. And in verse 30, Jesus promises this generation will see all these things. When Jesus says this generation, he's talking to his disciples. And to the best of our ability, it means his contemporaries. Mark 8 verse 12, Jesus, when the Pharisees seek a sign, he says directly to them, sighing deeply in his spirit. Why does this generation seek for a sign? So let's assume for just a moment. That Jesus is talking in these verses. About the seismic shift in perspective. Once the temple falls. During the generation of Christ's first disciples. They see great tribulation. But after that trouble. There's victory. As God uses his disciples as his messengers. Gathering his church. By heralding the gospel. Like a trumpet blast. Announcing that Christ is king and savior. This is a. Possible and well-attested interpretation of Mark 13 that has actually dominated most, most of church history, but it's one with which many of us are unfamiliar. And that's okay. And the reason that's okay is because these events also sound a lot like the description of the return of Jesus. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we read, The Lord himself will descend with heaven, excuse me, from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and the trump of God, the dead in Christ, will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet our returning and conquering king. Perhaps Jesus is saying to his disciples that they will see all of these things, but they will not see the things of those days, which are those things of a future generation. That's a, another possible reading of Mark 13. But in either view, church, here's what I want you to understand. Here's what we know for sure. The kingdoms of this world will crumble. Christ will be vindicated. And he is at work right now gathering his people through the proclamation of the gospel. None of that is debated. When the disciples see these things, Jesus wants them to know that summer is near. The time for the ripening of God's promises is very near. As Edwards writes, the fig tree signals the nearness of summer, but not its immediacy. That is that summer is coming, if not exactly when. In Luke, Jesus doesn't just say the fig tree. He says, or any tree. In other words, anybody who can walk outside and see that leaves are budding. Can know that it's on the way. It's near. And to his first disciples and to us. Jesus is saying anybody with a brain knows that he's near. Anybody with a brain knows it's coming. And the nearness of God has been true for us. From the moment of his ascension until today. So whether Jesus waits another 5, 500 or 5,000 years to come. It's near. We know Christ will return. Just the same way as the apostles watched him go. Acts one eleven. We can go forward in confidence, church, because we see by faith that Christ is ruling, he's reigning, and he's working through his church to grow his kingdom even in times of trouble. Until that day. Do you see what happens in verse 32? Jesus has been talking about these things, and then he's talking about those days. and. He's giving them a road map and he's giving them confidence. But when he comes to talk about that day, Jesus shocks us. He says, I don't even know when that day is. You see, that day refers to the day of Christ's return in judgment of his enemies and the deliverance of his people. If you go back in the Old Testament and you just Google that day or go into BibleGateway.com and just put in, in quotation marks, that day, you'll come up with these amazing verses about that day it's a horrible awful terrible day for those who don't know christ and yet for those who do know christ it's a it's a wonderful awesome joyous day of vindication and those are the options that you have that's it and jesus says about that day not even the son of man knows But he does know this about that day. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up to life everlasting on when? The last day. John 6.40 This verse is incredible to me. In his humanity, not even Jesus knows the timing of the day. Jesus is God. Of course he knows when the day is. He can't not know when the day is and be God because God is omniscient. So, of course, Jesus knows when the day is. But speaking of his humanity, Jesus does not know the day. No one knows. Not any angels, not Jesus, nobody. And if you don't believe what he says in verse 32, again in verse 33, he says, you do not know when the time will come. And guess what, church? If Jesus doesn't know when the time will come, you certainly don't know when the time will come. We have not been given the Bible to try and link it up with a bunch of current events on Fox News or CNN or whatever it is you watch and try to extrapolate a timeline to calculate when Jesus is coming back. I go to Christian bookstores and I see all these books about the signs of the times and astrological phenomena and all that stuff. If Jesus, who memorized the Old Testament and can take you anywhere in it and tell you what's about him, doesn't know the day in his humanity, what makes us think we're going to figure it The reason Jesus tells us we don't know the timing of that day is because we cannot know the timing of that day. Jesus says in Acts 1-7, It is not for us to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. The reason we get Mark 13 is not to encourage us to watch the skies or to watch the news, but so that we would watch ourselves. Take heed to yourself. Be alert and on guard for your behavior. For whether or not the way you walk is aligned with the Jesus that you profess. That's what you should watch out for. Because when that day comes, nobody's going to miss it. But until that day comes, nobody should be misled. We must be like the faithful doorkeeper of verse 34 who is commanded to stay alert, to be alive, to stay awake. As Edwards writes... Being ready at any hour for the return of the master is not one job among others. It is the doorkeeper's job. The doorkeeper's got one job. Know when the master's coming home. Take care of the sheets. Make sure the dishes are done. Make sure this place is ready for the master to walk back in. He had one job. Have you ever looked up hashtag you had one job? You remember back in the day, I, I've watched the NFL in more than a decade, but there used to be a commercial about the guy who painted the end zone for the Chiefs, and he accidentally spelt the word chefs in the end zone, and he looks at it, and he's, great googly-moogly. I, I've got some pictures here, but I, I don't know if, if they're showing Lamont of, of people who had one job. I mean, you just have one job, man. It, it's a free lane. No, no extra charge for parking there. Hey, church. When it comes to living for Jesus, we've got one job. Stay awake. Be alert. Live for him. You never know when he's coming. What will he find you about? I used to be a TA at Southeastern Seminary. And at the class before the final exam, all the students would ask if I had a study guide or if I could point them in the right direction or maybe give them a few suggested essays. At Virginia Tech, they had something called the KUFER. It was a a former test from that professor on file. And if you could get that, you at least had a good idea of what the next exam might be. But church, when it comes to the return of Jesus, there aren't any cheat sheets or study guides or last-minute cram plans. The only thing that works is faithful to Christ, faithfulness to Christ. I didn't hand out study guides at Southeastern Seminary. I said everything we've covered, every word you've read, every lecture you've heard, you are accountable for all of it. Because you're studying for ministry. And if you're going to handle the Word of God, you better handle it well. And you better be ready and accountable for everything. And you need to learn that now. Now, I don't know what they do over at Southern Seminary they probably hand out a bunch of cheat sheets But at Southeastern We don't do that stuff Ethan Smith (laughs) When I played baseball I was honored with the distinct Position of right field (coughs) Because of my incredible baseball skills You know what happens in right field Most of the time Nothing. nothing. (laughs) My dad was a pastor, and a lot of times he couldn't be at the game on time. There's hospital business and other things, but he would get to the games when he could. I can remember vividly when he got there because he had this booming voice. He'd be like, look alive out there, boy! Look alive! You never know he's going to hit one out there. Come on, stop playing with those dandelions and rubbing them on your (laughs) hands. Why do you do that? Because you never know when the ball's coming your way. And occasionally the third baseman would overthrow the first baseman. And because of the encouragement of my dad, I'd be there to back him up and save the play, save our team. And save myself the embarrassment of not being ready. That's what Jesus is doing in Mark 13. His words about the future are intended to shape our lives in the present. The way that we endure now is by staying awake. And to stay awake in the game of life means we've got to live in such a way that when he appears, that we can have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. We want to be a church that is ready with open arms, welcoming our King. Those who've been saved by the king watch for the king by vigilantly watching how they live. How tragic it's going to be for those on that day when they come, they've spent their whole lives saying, tomorrow I'll begin again. Tomorrow I'll confess my sin and repent and really live for him. Tomorrow I'll start to serve him. Tomorrow I'll tell my neighbor or my cousin or my co-worker about the fact that my king is coming. Tomorrow, 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 only to discover there's coming a day on that day that tomorrow never comes. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has told us that the fig tree is about to bloom. It's Its leaves are about to come out. Summer is near. The purpose of God will ripen fast and we must watch and stay awake and be alert, which means we've got to refuse to take God's grace for granted. It means we remember we've been bought at a great price and we live our lives for our king. As John Piper said, don't waste your life on superficial things. Give your life unreservedly to what matters. Stop living for yourself, believing that you're going to make things right in the end. If you know you need to make things right, why would you not do it right now? And if you'll not do it right now, what leads you to think you would ever do it? Church, the day of Christ's coming is near and it will come like a thief in the night. So what must we do? While we do not know the day or the hour, Paul reminds us, it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep. Now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. So church, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Why? Because Christ, our ruling, reigning King, is coming. And we want Him to find North Roanoke Baptist Church has stayed awake. Let's stay awake, church. Would you bow? Our great God and King. As our deacons begin to prepare for the Lord's Supper. We want to bow our hearts before you now and confess, God. That it is easy to watch so many other things than it is to watch ourselves. That it is easy to put off to tomorrow what we should be putting on today. God, help us to put on the full armor of God. Help us to be vigilant as those who are watching after ourselves because we want to worship our reigning King. Lord, I, I pray like a magnet like a moth to a flame, that you would find your people at North Roanoke Baptist Church so eager for your return, so laboring for your return, so desirous of your return that the whole watching world, the whole Roanoke Valley, God, would be drawn to this people because they are different. They are distinct. They smell like Jesus. They don't look like this world. They look otherworldly. They look even strange because of their radical devotion to Jesus. God, when you come again, may we be those who have stayed awake. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen.